Hello everybody and welcome to episode four of Thelma and Tom Look Left. And uh, you know, this is going on and on and I'm really pleased and uh, yeah, nice to see you again Thelma. I always enjoy talking to you. Yeah, it's lovely to see you too, Tom. And Tom, you've you've made the headlines, well, almost, uh, this yeah. morning. I was reading my paper and um, I was looking at a great piece on a podcast, uh, Lockdown Parenting Hell, that's, oh, yeah, um, yeah, that's yeah. got loads and loads of followers. Um, it's uh, Josh Widdicombe and Rob Beckett. I think you might know them. And, um, I do. And, yes, I and, do know them. Do you know what a, what a heartwarming piece and so insightful about what it's been like parenting during lockdown um, and the male perspective, but lots of women are really liking it um, yeah. because, you know, their appreciation was coming through of that balancing act I keep talking about that women have got um, with the parenting and the work. Um, and it just helps. But the thing that touched me the most, Tom, with getting to know you so much better, was some of the lovely things that that, that Josh actually said um, about you. And, and and I'll just I've got the I've got the piece in front of me, and oh, he, okay. he's, he said you, you're going to feel all embarrassed about this, but uh, I'm, I'm going to read it to <laughs> you. He just do. says, <laughs> my, "My my dad was basically an old hippie. Well, we know that, don't we? Um, and he grew up in the '60s, so I had a very laid back childhood." There was no pressure to do well at school or do a certain job. I'd hope that would be the thing I take from that. But then I'm a more uptight person than my dad, so that probably comes through. So that self-awareness from Josh, but also that appreciation of that freedom he had, really. Um, Because one of my concerns with, with the culture that we've got um, in schools and in society generally at the moment is the pressure that, that children are under to be or to achieve a certain target and ever more so at the moment with this catching up language that's being used. Um, We live just across the road from a primary school and I can hear the children playing now in the playground and I know they've been having extended playtimes and I just, hearing their children playing and laughing together and I thought that's got to be the priority and that, what what Josh said, you know, touched me. and, and and the other thing, the other thing he said as well, which really made me laugh, and I thought about the humour in your family. Um, I didn't really get told off when I was a kid, but that's a combination of my dad being laid back and me being a dweeb. <laughs> it was kind of a, it was kind of a perfect storm in that sense. There was also a lot of taking the piss. That was a big deal in our house. I would want my children. I would want my children to grow up in a house that was a laugh. I would hate for it to be a sterile atmosphere. I mean, yeah. don't you feel proud to hear that? Because I, that, that no, really resonated with, with me because humour was... I'm not saying we were perfect parents, my husband and I, but humour always, and as a teacher, always seemed to work for me yeah. um, with, with kids. And our two boys we were sometimes a bit merciless with them, really. Um, but it seemed to get out of a very confrontational situation to use humour. And it's clear to me that Josh liked and understood that. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah. so I could, I, you know, when I read that this morning, I thought that is absolutely great. And uh, yeah, does it make you feel uh, proud? Yeah, to hear I, that I, it does because I, I mean, you know, at that time when when me, Sarah and me were bringing up Josh, and in in the middle of your life, I think we were in our thirties. And you know, you're kind of thinking, what am I doing in my, with my life? What am I going to be 
you know, am I anything? Or And there's always this pressure, isn't there, to be some big cheese or or do something big, like write a book or something. And, 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 and yet, actually, when it came down to it, the most important thing we had to do was uh, look after this little human being and, and, and get him to appreciate what life's, what's important in life. Yeah. And, well, uh, you've ended up with a wonderful human being, haven't you? Well, <laughs> you've, you've I, I, I am proud of him. And, and you know, mm. I, I do, I get embarrassed because he's quite, you know, he is overly kind to me and, uh, and, to, oh. and to his <laughs> mum. Uh, but, you know, uh, yeah, it was, yeah, it was great to do that work and that job. I, I, I know it's not really a job, it's, it's, a voc- it's whatever, part of life. Yeah, yeah. But, but I, 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 you know, read the school thing, Thelma, and I, I know I've picked this up off you at, over the short time I've known you, that I just, I struggled with schools, even when they were quite good in the sort of 80s, 90s. Uh, I struggled because I just think there's not enough emphasis on the joy of life. And there's far too much emphasis on on this whole other thing that, as uh, you know, in a way, I know it's important that we, you know, we survive and do well as a, as a race, you know, financially and all the rest of it, but it's so secondary to the, the human spirit. And, um, yeah. and yeah. Our, I mean, obviously it's got hugely worse, hasn't it? The last 15 years have been diabolical and uh, yeah, I think I think that narrowing of the curriculum and that um, lack of time and focus on children's relationships, uh, interpersonal skills, uh, team building, you know, all of those things that are not yeah. just about a whole person, but about how you work in future life with other people yeah. um, and relationships and uh, that emotional well-being we're finding what, now. What, Thelma, you, I mean, you can remember this. I, 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 well, I don't know what your childhood was like, but when I was a kid, my mum was at home looking after her kids. And, uh, and then as we, as, as we carried on, it got to a point where you couldn't do that anymore because you couldn't afford to. And both parents had to go out to work. Now, I know a lot of women probably thinking as I say this, well, you know, women should be able to have a career, blah, blah, blah. But it's a career bringing up your kids properly as well, isn't it? And, and being there for them when they need you. I mean, I, I don't want to sound too misogynistic. I hope I haven't there. Well, but... I, I would say it's always a choice. And, um, and I think real emancipation is, is a woman's right to have that choice uh, and equality is about having the choice and if you don't fund childcare adequately is one aspect of it mm, you mm. take away that choice for many women and I think again the pandemic showing as I mentioned earlier that a lot of women who who do want to work and have that choice as well about part-time working and job mm. sharing and as a head I always try and offer the offer the um, younger teachers that opportunity to um, to job share if they wanted to when they returned after maternity leave because I think it's it's just so important as as a woman and as an individual that that you you have that choice about whether you want to stay at home full-time with your child uh, which is you know hard work very rewarding but hard work um whether you want to do a bit of both or or whether you want to return full-time and every woman should have that choice but if you don't fund um and you don't make paying conditions um and maternity benefits adequate then you're going to take that choice away which is all about for me, socialism, um, and and part of what I, I believe in in terms of policy uh, for the future, 
Um, and we shouldn't still be having to battle for these things, I don't think. No, and really, I think... It really does annoy me. Yeah, I, I just think we've been conned, really, because there was a time when... OK, firstly, on, on that point of who looks after the kids, when... when uh, when Josh was little, and my, my wife Sarah is a qualified and educated person, and she could earn, uh, you know, not proper money, but good money, where I couldn't. And so when Josh was little, I, I looked after him and she had a career. And uh, so one way or another, I don't really mind, but I just feel like what's happened now is where my mum and dad... One could work, one could look after the kids, and they could still afford to buy a house. Mm -hmm. Now, both parents have to work, yeah. and they still yeah. can't afford to buy a house. Yeah. You know, we've been the totally turned over by this yeah. idea that work and careers and jobs are somehow going to make us wealthy. When, mm -hmm. when you look back, you can see, actually, we were better off, really. Uh, well, quality of life for, for many, yeah, has deteriorated and that goes with the inequality and uh, the pressure that young families are under these days, I think. I mean, uh, I mean that, that is um, pointed out in this piece in The Guardian today um, on the podcast um, and, uh, you know, that both uh, Josh and Rob are saying that they've discovered... Um, how how much their partners were doing when they were kind of on tour or away from home and yeah. and appreciating that it isn't about how how much money you earn necessarily but or doing the big things with your kids it's actually you all as a family enjoy that time together and lockdowns yeah. made them appreciate that a lot more so I think um, it's a really interesting really interesting piece um, and I'm going to tune into their. Uh, the podcast definitely i'm going to listen to it because it's uh, uh thelma yeah, i'll really just warn you now i'll thelma i'll just warn you now there's a lot of swearing um, <gasps> really? <laughs> oh my goodness don't frighten the horses <laughs> you'll be fine but i just warn you Rob. it's a, it's a weird thing that I, I i'm still kind of like thinking does do they really have to swear that much and I, but it's part <laughs> of their language uh yeah. and part of their culture yeah. and um uh, not not just Josh and Rob, but the, that whole no. you know that generation yeah. in a way, and that kind of I don't yeah. I don't know what you call them, but there's a whole uh... yeah I think there is a generational thing. We're going off uh, subject really, but I think there is a generational thing with um, with swearing, and um, that there's certain words because I swear sometimes. I mean, I, you know, when I get yeah. angry about stuff, yeah. Which, yeah. Uh, which at the moment, especially with the politics, is <laughs> fairly frequent. Um, but um, I, I, there's certain words that I just would not use that, yeah. that seem to be prevalent at the moment and I think mm. oh it's a sign I'm getting older perhaps you know that I'm thinking you know that that is me uh, and uh, I've just got to respect that that that's the younger generation and that's what they're using and uh, but there are yeah. there are certain ways I think oh, I, 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 I agree with that. you Thelma I, I just think I, I mean logically I can see there's no there's no logical argument against swearing at all but I'm I'm very careful to swear only in company that is completely yeah. happy with me swearing. Well, me too. I, and I always think it's a sign that you haven't got any other words to use, isn't it, really? It, <laughs> it's a kind of... <laughs> it's, it's filling in a gap, isn't it? Because you can't think of the vocabulary, the appropriate vocabulary, really. Yeah, That's the truth of yeah. It. I mean, I, I quite like it in some circumstances, but I'm, I'm very, yeah. very conscious of it in others. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, that's fantastic about that. Um, about that um, yeah, it made know. my morning. I really enjoyed yeah. reading it, they're, especially they're now. 
lovely, lovely people. Like Josh has got yeah, a lot of really through. nice friends, and and um, and also I'll tell you another thing that I really enjoy, and I think you probably do too, is watching my son with his child, and yeah. and just the the way he. It's almost like you can see yourself, uh, and that's yes. just lovely. Yeah. Um, I think it's wonderful being a grandparent. We've just got um, the one grandchild, her yeah, daughter, granddaughter, yeah. and um, she she's just delightful. And I and I'm the same. I'm the same. It's just a joy being a grandparent. Yeah. really, really. Yeah, because it. it kind of reflects. You know, I you kind of think, well, Christ, I've got something right in my life, but you know more by luck than judgment but you know something good's coming out of this anyway oh, that, that, yeah great great <laughs> thank you so much for your kind words Thelma on that oh anyway. it's my pleasure um yeah so uh, uh we were gonna talk about um yeah just briefly um I better keep my eye on the time a little bit just, yeah briefly we'll just say obviously the, the huge in the news this week but not really uh, but also a huge topic for everybody. This st- this stuff about the royal family and and it on and on and on. I think there's some important issues in there that that are you know like well basically racism. That's huge. Uh, and then there's the other thing about well who are these people uh, that you know are the, not so much nowadays. But when I was young and a kid, it was like well they're special people. I can remember. I can remember my granny, my dad's mum, saying to me, well, their, their blood is different to ours. And I was thinking, this is just insanity. And, um, but, but, you know, well, I know it's not like that now, but that's the root of it, isn't it? Yeah, I, well, such a big story over the last uh, few days in particular. But, I mean, yes, it's about racism, but it's about mental health as well and people's attitudes yes, yes, towards absolutely. it and understanding of it. Um, the the royal family. I mean, I, I should say that I I have I I have some sympathy with them in terms of they all they're dysfunctional for a start. That's clear, but they all seem so trapped and unhappy. Um, and you can you can see it behind those smiles. You can see it with every one of them. The, the what we've just been talking about. It's not about how much you earn or how much money you've got. It's about you you inner self and mm. whether you're at peace with yourself and mm. um what what comes through uh, is that um whole whole family it seems to me just seems as i say so trapped and unhappy and um and i i, I feel like for the queen i do have respect for her in that she's devoted her whole life and a sense of duty um to keeping the kind of crown. Have you watched The Crown, by the way, at Netflix? Oh, yeah, yeah. I've watched The Crown. I mean, Brilliant. you know, to, to, to keep the crown, the idea of the crown and and um, royalty and um, going and holding holding on to those traditions that, that really now, to me, are such an anachronism. And it's holding on to something that, we, in my opinion, we need to let go. And I do... I do have respect for her, but I do feel really sorry that she's fought to keep something yeah. that that we need to let go now. And what this last week or so has exposed as well is the control of the right-wing media. Oh. Not just, quite sinister, I thought, not not just over, you know, left-wing politician, politicians or socialists, or, but, but also over the royal family. And their fear of if the tabloids turn against them. And so there's a whole 
whole load of things that have been the, the racism, the attitudes towards mental health, the control of the media, the idea that royalty now is not even being able to be resuscitated, if you like, by, by yeah. right-wing media. Um, it's, it's the kind of ashes of something that, that we're not... I don't think that, that are going to be able to be revived um and it it is it is very sad but i do think that there's a mood especially i would think there's a generational divide as well here um mm. amongst younger people they're the ones that are being affected most by ele nearly 11 years of austerity and now the pandemic they're the ones who can't afford to own their own home or pay their rent um, and are queuing up at the food banks. They're the ones paying the tuition fees. Sorry, I'm on my soapbox here. No, that's all right. I... Um, you know, I really, really feel that, that this with the younger generation, many of them look at the royal family and then they look at Harry and Meghan who've kind of escaped. Uh, and yes, they're wealthy. And, and yes, they have far more privilege. But they see this young, modern couple and... Their critics say that they're, you know, they're threatening our sovereign and our monarchy, and you know, but that they were the chance of 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 bringing the royal family into the twenty first century. Um, but, but then I would say that we wouldn't have a if we, if it was the twenty first century properly, we wouldn't be having a a royal family, <laughs> you know, because I just think we're so ready for for a republic now. But yeah. I well, I think, I think, um, I think, yeah, well, I, 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 I'm, I guess maybe because of our age, Thelma, I'm, I'm fairly sympathetic to their plight. Uh, and partly because I've watched The Crown as well, which I think was a pretty good PR stunt for them, really, until the Diana bit when Charles looked a bit hideous, to say the least. But, um, but you know, the, the, there's some issues with that. There was a, there was a similar family in Spain. Uh, King Carlos and and they, and they were playing the same game really. But what happened there somehow? I, I haven't researched how, but they managed to disentangle them from the state, and now they are they're still there. He's gone, mm -hmm. Carlos is gone, but there's another one, and uh, and they they have a small amount of money. Well, relatively small. They have seven million pound a year uh, pocket money from the state. Our royal family are still totally entwined in the constitutional affairs of the country. And if you believe, you know, some of the press, they're still interfering in all sorts. Um, and I, I personally think they probably are. And, and the cost to us is, some, is, is eight, uh, 69 million a year. Well, I suppose some people are going to say, well, that's not a lot, blah, blah, blah. But all these little bits and pieces add up. And, uh, you know, you just... Well, I think the eyes of the world are... I agree with you, Tom, but I think the eyes of the world are, are watching. I mean, what gets me, though, about a lot of people, especially the USA, the different attitudes of, uh, of, of Americans uh, to the Brits and the royal family, is that many countries around the world like our royal family, but it's almost like they borrow them. They don't want one themselves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, it's, so, so it's kind of, oh, we love your royal family, but, oh, no, we don't want, we don't want a royal family yeah, interfering yeah, yeah. in our democracy. Where do you stand on? Because um, a lot of one of the arguments for the royal family is, well, at least you can have a head of state that's not politically elected. Uh, uh, but there's loads of republics, aren't there? Yeah, there are loads of republics, and um, uh, you know, and 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 you have your president, and um, I I think that 
really, as I say, I've got great respect for the Queen and, and how much of her life and uh, service she's given to the country. I don't, um, I don't have any qualms about saying that. Um, but but I think in terms of having royal assent on our laws and legislation and um, how everything's intertwined with the Church of England, um, oh, yeah. I you know I, I I just you know the unelected House of Lords it's it's all of it isn't it that needs yeah. a, a review and yeah. um, I I think I you know I I've said quite openly that I think the time come will come. Um, when when the Queen um, you know, sadly passes away, but when she does, that then is the time to, to look at all of this, um, to review you know control um, of the press, um, and and to, to look at you know the unelected House of Lords, um, and and all of it. It's that establishment that, that needs to be, and it would be a very slow process, and and mm. it, it would need lots of consultations and citizens' yeah. assemblies and all of that. Um, yeah. But it does need looking at. It definitely yeah. does. I mean, there's obviously we could have done we could have done a whole podcast on all those aspects, and it would probably be fascinating. Anyway, we better wrap up this first section of the podcast because we're going to welcome our guests shortly. Um, so yeah, see you in a minute. Here we are again, and uh, a, a huge welcome to our guest, Richard Bergen. And uh, yet again, I don't quite know how to describe MP on the left of the Labour Party, Secretary of the Socialist Campaign Group. And I believe you're friends with my co-host, Thelma. I'm proud to be so. It was wonderful to be in Parliament with Thelma. I was so sorry when she wasn't uh, re-elected. I remember in the 2019 general election doing a fantastic rally uh, for Thelma uh, in a hall in her constituency and there were huge numbers there to support Thelma but also the breadth of support she had from different parts of the community it was really inspiring and really a really enthusiastic event and actually that's one of my best memories of the 2019 general election was that wonderful uh, rally for uh, Thelma in Colne Valley. Oh, I, you know, I agree with you, Richard. It's so lovely to, to have you on with us uh, today. But that rally sticks in my mind as well. Um, I, I mentioned to Dawn uh, Butler the other day that she came up to Combe Valley too and we uh, we had a fantastic time when she came. Um, but when you came uh, as well to that, to that huge rally, uh, I mean, that hall was packed, wasn't it, Richard? Um, yeah, it's absolutely uh, packed, the upstairs and the downstairs. Everything, and and the the spirit, the, you know, the feel in the room of uh, of that, just just that enthusiasm that everybody had of, of how it could be, um, and, and all those activists that were in the room as well, working so hard, and uh, yeah, as I say, it's just a, a shame we didn't get the result that we want, but I, I do want to say thank you to you, uh, as I said to Dawn last week, because I know how busy you were, um, and uh, you were at so many different events but thank you um in retrospect a bit of a late thank you to you for for coming and supporting me in the way that you did because it was just like you it's one of my fondest memories uh, of that no campaign. it's a great pleasure and it's nice sometimes uh, on my phone it comes up with memories from a year ago memories from two years ago uh, and it's not too long ago that the the memory of photos taken at that event flashed up on my phone and so i had a look at them and to see the looks of excitement and hope on people's faces. Mm. Uh, obviously, it feels mm. sad now because 
mm. at the time we didn't know we were just a few days away from a, a devastating election defeat but I look back to those times I think we can learn the lessons from them uh, and there's no reason uh, why we can't get back on the front foot uh, no reason why we can't have our movement invigorated and move forward together and recreate uh, that feeling, recreate that sense of hope, but next time uh, win instead of lose. Yeah, that's right. Because those policies, I still believe, were right and are right um, for what we need for society. So, I, yeah, again, I agree with you, Richard. And uh, on, on a less serious note, you're into heavy metal, Certainly now, am. What what what's that about? I mean, I don't want to be, you know, stereotyping, but I always thought heavy metal was kind of leather jackets and tattoos and well, I've got piercings and all that. You well, know, I've got my I own mean, leather jacket. I haven't got any tattoos. I can reveal. Um, <laughs> I, I first got into heavy metal when I was just eight years old. I went on holiday to Malta with my parents, and there was this lad staying in the hotel we were staying, and he had his earphones on his Walkman. And I said, oh, what, what are you listening to? And he put one of the uh, earphones in my ear and it was like the heaviest, nastiest thing at that stage of my life I'd ever heard. I thought, that's amazing. That's amazing. It sounds really dangerous, really noisy. I said, oh, what's that? And he said, it's, uh, oh, it's called Iron Maiden. And so the next day I went out and got my parents to buy me a, a bootleg Iron Maiden tape from a, a street stall in Malta. And ever since then, at the age of eight, when I got into Iron Maiden, I've been into heavy metal uh, ever since, really. And I'm still passionately so, into it. And I'm looking forward to eventually being able to safely go to heavy metal gigs again as a bit of a relaxation away from politics. Yeah. So do you play it in your, I don't know if you've got a house or a flat, but do you, uh, do you have soundproofing? or? <laughs> I don't have soundproofing, but I have uh, very nice uh, neighbours. And I don't play it too loud. I don't play it too loud. But I'm here in my house in Crossgates uh, in East Leeds and... I'll probably listen to some heavy metal fairly loudly later, but not so not so loudly as it'll offend the neighbours. Because <laughs> one, I'm a considerate neighbour, but also you don't want uh, the local MP to be getting into trouble with the neighbours as being a noise nuisance. It wouldn't look good, would it? <laughs> I think it's amazing. I think it's amazing. I think Tom knows something yeah, about can, music. Can you uh, can, can I talk to you a bit about that heavy metal? Of course. Richard? Um, I mean, I don't know how much you know about it. I, I don't know much, but I do know that um, I remember in 1970, uh, I was working at CBS Records as uh, um, I used to take back the... I was in charge of the returns, faulty records, and one of the ones that used to come back quite a lot was Black Sabbath. Wow. Um, and, uh, and what we used to do, and I, I, put, I don't care who knows now, I think I'm probably in the clear, we used to... Uh, Nick a lot of these records that got returned. They only had small faults. Oh, you know, do you know, some... I, I, don't, I didn't know who I was working with, Tom. Goodness <laughs> me. <laughs> yeah, but come on, I was young. You know, <laughs> different times, etc. Anyway, Black Sabbath were considered to be the original heavy metal band, aren't they? Yes. And then they came out with an album after Black Sabbath called Paranoid. Yes. And um, on Paranoid, the, they had um, a political track that was um, called War Pigs, uh, War Pigs. Yes. and it was anti, anti-Vietnam War. And that, so they kind of, uh, as far as I know, they weren't really a political band. They were just musicians who enjoyed that music and wanted to, 
you know, hit the big time, which, of course, they did. Um, but I just... I'm interested to know the politics... Are there any politics? Because in, in, in the hippie movement, the music, especially early on, in the six, sort of 66, 67, 68, it was very politicised and, uh, and a part of the movement. And I, I, when we got to about 1970, 71, I was really quite disappointed that that all kind of just drifted off and it all became a bit kind of boring glam and all that. I wondered if heavy metal... Is, is any politics involved or is it just... Well, music? heavy metal is generally more focused on escapism if you're talking about traditional heavy metal. And so that's why you get um, Ronnie James Dio, who was the second singer in Black Sabbath. So he had been in Elf and then Rainbow and he joined Black Sabbath I think in 1979 when Ozzy Osbourne left... Oh, Ozzy Osbourne quit, didn't he? They so couldn't Ronnie James Dio, uh, all his lyrics were about sword and sorcery, dungeons and dragons, and that, in terms of traditional heavy metal, the kind of Tolkien-esque focus, which you can even see in some of the Led Zeppelin lyrics, um, that's the kind of mainstay of traditional heavy metal, escapism, otherworldliness rather than the political focus. But yeah, I remember that track. It's one of my favourite Black Sabbath tracks, uh, War Pigs. And I remember the heavy metal nightclub I used to go to in Leeds on a Friday night. Um, when the Iraq war started, I remember the DJ, uh, who later joined the Labour Party, actually. Uh, I recruited him. Uh, he, he played War Pigs that night. I remember on that Friday night of the week that the bombing of Baghdad uh, started. And it was quite poignant when he played it that night. Um, and so, you know, a song that had been relevant in the early 70s in relation to Vietnam was now relevant in the early 2000s in relation to Iraq. And I suppose that's the, that's the same with any great political song, in that yeah. even if its focus is on something specific to that time, it remains relevant. And the only way it becomes irrelevant is if we move away from a society where there's war, where there's injustice, uh, where there's... Uh, inequality but yeah i mean the first black sabbath album of course which you referred to uh, when you were at cbs that came out in 1970 that's right so you know 50 years old more than quite incredible really the first yeah first heavy metal album and i think they recorded it in like two days on a budget of yeah. next to nothing yeah and, you know these blokes from aston in birmingham and then became yeah. a band that created a new genre which is still going strong but in answer to your question which i've digressed from at most heavy metal isn't political most of it's uh, escapism if you're talking about traditional heavy metal and the new wave of british heavy metal bands like iron maiden and saxon and diamond head right. and bands like that yeah right so sorry i've 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 learned loads there you two <laughs> i think you could have done a whole podcast episode on that I think that's uh, really interesting uh, yeah, yeah, I'm totally up well, to date now and informed listen to this for a little fact about heavy metal that Richard can probably either back up or trash uh, the, the, the whole sound of heavy metal started because the guitarist in Black Sabbath lost the tips of his fingers in a metal pressing machine in Birmingham and he, he still wanted to play the guitar, so the only way he could play it was by down-tuning his strings, slackening them off a bit, and so that he could do it with his chopped-off fingers. And that was the basis of the whole genre of heavy metal music. That's that right, fact or yeah. fiction? That's Tony scary. Iommi, the guitarist and founder of Black Sabbath, he worked in a foundry in, in Birmingham, and it was on his last day there, his last day of his, his job there, 
before he was going to leave. Uh, and the tips of two of his fingers got chopped off. So, so what he did, he started off by using the tops of washing up uh, bottles and he just fixed them to the end of his fingers. And as you say, slackened the strings because you couldn't press as hard on them. Uh, and he used the, the tips of the washing up uh, bottles uh, as the ends of his fingers. And it was through that accident, uh, through that historical quirk, really, that that sound uh, was formed. Mm. What an amazing story. Yeah, and, um, What a determined man to, to carry on Definitely, you know, yeah. in the face of adversity. That's, that's amazing. So Which, is it still... Sorry, sorry, Selma. No, it's okay. No, I, I'm going to stop there because I know you two are going to carry on heavy metal. I, I promise you I won't carry on. The last question about heavy metal. Is it still happening, Richard? I mean, is the new heavy metal coming out? Yeah, so the older bands are still big. You know, for example, Iron Maiden, who I think are the, the greatest ever, ever, ever heavy metal band, they formed in 1975, uh, didn't get signed until 1980. So it's 41 years since the first album. But they're now bigger than they've ever been. And so they've sold over 100 million records. And the thing with heavy metal, because it's never been in fashion, it never goes out of fashion. And so what you ha have is the, the fan base is added to all the time with each new generation. And new, another generation of young people get into it. And so Iron Maiden's gigs have got bigger and bigger and bigger uh, on that basis. Of course, there's new uh, heavy metal bands uh, around, you know, from Britain, from all around the world. And it's still a, still a thriving genre. And I think the secret to its success, as I say, because it's never been in fashion, it's never gone out of fashion. And that's why I think that heavy metal will never die. Oh, what a statement. Ooh, well, what what a way good. to end the that's, conversation. That's the about strap that. line for the podcast, isn't it? Thelma, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Amazing. Yeah, no, no, it's fine. It was really interesting because genuinely I have learned quite a bit there that I didn't, I didn't know and I was uh, joking at the beginning, but then what a story of how it was uh, all, all started. Um, Richard, I want to ask you how socialists and left-wing politicians in particular are ever going to get a fair hearing with mainstream media? Um, because I know when I was in Parliament that I'd, I'd watch front benches, and you were one of them, face uh, the media very often. And for many of you, you, you were so good um, at handling it, but I often felt there was a, a tension there all the time with, in particular, um, the, the left-wing uh, MPs of oh what they're gonna what they're gonna do with this edit or you know what are they gonna ask me next and and just on my kind of micro scale with like regional tv and radio when i was involved as an mp i can remember feeling really tense a lot of the time not because i didn't want to say what i wanted to say or i couldn't say what i wanted to say and believed in what i was saying but because i felt that the, there was always going to be a sting in the tail or it was going to be edited in a way that was going to make me look either i got got it wrong or i'd said something outrageous and I, I just want your thoughts on how i mean our podcast is a way of getting that left-wing uh, voice out there but how do you think that that left-wingers and left-wing politicians in particular can get a fair hearing when mainstream media is the way it is at the moment well it's it's difficult isn't it and i think you you're right to say there's always a tension uh, that the media was out to get us which they were and they did a good job on it really didn't they because the media even managed to convince people that one of the greatest anti-racist politicians of our time 
uh, Jeremy Corbyn, was somehow himself a racist. And they managed to convince large numbers of people of that before the last general election. Um, I remember, I think it was at the Labour Party conference a couple of years ago uh, in Liverpool, I remember a taxi driver saying to me how, um, he said, oh, we're having a discussion uh, and he was aware I was a Labour MP and he said, oh yeah, the media gives you a hard time. And he goes, because he said that he thinks if, if the media's giving you a hard time, he goes, you must be doing something right. And of course, Liverpool is a city more than any other that really knows how the right-wing main, so-called mainstream media uh, can distort reality, how it can demonise decent people. And so you're kind of pushing an open door, really, in, in Liverpool in terms of people understanding that the way you're portrayed in the media isn't necessarily how you are. Uh, because you look at the disgraceful way that some newspaper uh, treated the Hillsborough families and that whole city is absolutely appalling. But in, in terms of how we deal with it, I think we've got to build our own media, haven't we? And podcasts are very important. Alternative media platforms such as Navara Media. Um, and I, when I stood for deputy leader of the Labour Party, I, I argued that the Labour Party should have its own YouTube channel, but a good one, but a good YouTube channel, where on an evening you could have proper discussions about the news that day to give an alternative viewpoint uh, on the news. Because one of the things is, on the, on, the, on the television, it's not really a proper discussion. They're not interested in discussing ideas all too often. They're interested in just catching you out. So sometimes you can't even finish your sentence before they've interrupted you so that you couldn't get to the end of the sentence where you come to your conclusion. And then they therefore distort the point you're trying to make. And sometimes even when I look at footage from television in the 70s and 80s, there seems to be far more of a, a space for discussion, far more a space for a kind of detailed discourse, far more of a space for a considered discussion about policies, beliefs, political philosophy. And we've, we've, we've lost that, and I think that's a shame. And one of the reasons I think that so many politicians, myself included probably, in the past, sometimes come across as a bit wooden or shifty in our answers uh, is because you're not feeling relaxed. You're not taking the questions mm. as at face value. You think they're about to try and trap you. So you, yeah. you end up coming across as cagey when in real life or in a meeting, you're not cagey or at a public yeah. meeting, you're not cagey. Just, just coming in on that, Richard, that was the point I was really... You, you've, you've expressed that really well because that was the point I was, I was getting at, really, that the real you uh, or, or the real people I know and knew... Uh, I often didn't see... Well, you weren't allowed for that to come through. And I think it was that human uh, aspect, you know, the warmth of a person's personality um, almost was prevented from coming through. So it's not just preventing the policies and the message coming through because you've constantly been interrupted, um, but it's also um, allowing the public to see... Um, the sense of humour, for instance, because I know most of you that were on that front bench have kind of really, well, like Jeremy, I think, has a really whimsical kind of sense of humour. And you've got quite a, a wicked sense of humour, if you don't mind me saying. Um, I should mention one example of that was when, do you remember that? Is. 
No, well, no, it was it was me that was shown up because I was on a carriage on a train getting the early train down to London on the Leeds train. Thought I was in the carriage on my own and I was feeling really, really hard working weekend. I was really tired. Closed my eyes and you know when you feel like somebody's watching you. But you and I opened and you were there, stood above me, grinning at me <laughs> and kind of saying, oh, sorry to wake you up, Salma. Do you remember that? Yeah, And I, I was so funny. embarrassed. But you stood there and I just knew. And but that that kind of sense of humour that you've got and that banter that we had with each other, it it frustrated me when I saw people being interviewed, and that humour, that warmth, that whole person, um, from a lot of the mainstream media, it just wasn't coming through at all. And I just thought it was so unfair, especially when I see now Boris Johnson and the government front bench getting away with literally murdering my my view yeah i mean when you watch um, the when you watch the interviews with uh johnson and the others see how few times they get interrupted by many of the journalists whereas some of the rest yeah. of us you can't finish your yeah. sentence before you've been interrupted and basically you start your sentence and if the interviewer realizes you haven't messed up your answer they're therefore no longer interested in the answer so oh he can answer this one let's stop him answering it let's move on to the next one so all they're interested mm. in is the kind of gotcha moment and that doesn't yeah. that doesn't make no. for decent political television uh, and also it makes mps not anyone, anyone will feel sorry for mps but people go on tv in the mindset almost like they're on trial and so they're quite mm. wooden and defensive sometimes mm. and i think we do need a space to do such ideas let's hear the conservatives talk about their vision for society let's hear labor mps mm. and socialists talk about their vision for society and then let people make up their own minds. You know, public interest broadcasting should bring out these different opinions so people could make, make up mm. their minds for themselves. And sadly, all too often, it, uh, it, it doesn't. And also the way the media seems to think it's outrageous if MPs aren't completely infallible. Like, have you ever, mm. if you've ever changed your opinion on anything, that shows that you're no good. Have you ever made a mistake? That shows you're no good. And I just think it's... It's regrettable, really. And also the way that the news coverage is reduced into such a short period of time. It'd be good to have a longer discussion programmes. I think it'd be good for politics and good for the democratic process. But if the mainstream media won't do it, we have to do it ourselves. And I think that podcasts are one way to do it. Well, I think that the podcasts and the different platforms that are emerging is the real positive um, over this past year or so. Um, and I think especially the younger generation, because there is a generational divide, isn't there, here, um, on how younger people access information um, and update themselves on, on the political situation. So I think that's a real positive, and that growth in the area of, like, Socialist TV, Navara uh, News. And oh, yeah, it's great. Double you know, Down Socialist News, telly, Byline Navarra News. Media, you know, Joe, Double the, Down News, brilliant. There's, there, it's, just, it's just great, isn't it? So, so you know, I, I am feeling much more positive about, about the growth in, in that, in those different platforms and, and getting that, that, that message out, um, which is and really another, important. another new relatively new initiative uh, that's really welcome uh, in the world of the print media is the uh, refounding and resurgence of Tribune magazine, which has yes. got yeah, uh, you know, big subscription yeah. numbers now. Mm. And that allows people from the left to share their ideas at length. Mm. And what's great about it is uh, it's not all one line in there. You know, left-wingers will read that 
uh, Tribune magazine. There'll be some articles they completely agree with, some articles they partially agree with, some articles maybe they completely disagree with, but I think that's healthy because we need to be exposing mm. ourselves to different ideas all the time because mm. we learn something, don't we, from listening to other people's perspectives. And so I, mm. I think it comes back to as well the need for political education in our movement, the space and scope to consider ideas and discuss them. Because all too often in the Labour Party, historically, political education has consisted of, here's a bag of leaflets, go and deliver them. Yeah. Now that's important, but that's not political education. We need to be discussing mm. ideas and different policies and different visions as well. Mm. It needs to come from the grassroots as well, doesn't it? Yes, you know? yeah, definitely. Yeah, and certainly after this pandemic, I think even more so. Um, you're secretary of the Socialist Campaign Group, Richard, um, and I know that from the left there's been quite a lot of pressure, hasn't there, um, on the campaign group in terms of, well, what what are they going to do? How are they going to push forward those socialist policies? Um, and the response of the campaign group towards the suspension of the whip, uh, Jeremy's whip. Um, so how how do you as secretary and a leading force in in that group how do you see the socialist campaign group impacting on the future direction of the labor party as it is at the moment yeah so i'm secretary of the socialist campaign group and i refounded it after um asking the kind of permission or go ahead from jeremy uh, john mcdonald and, and diane uh, abbott uh, because the Socialist Campaign Group, you know, for listeners who don't know its history, uh, was founded in uh, 1982, in the early 80s. Um, and it, it was founded primarily because um, some of the left had failed to support Tony Benn for deputy leader, and they were in the then Tribune Group as was. So there was kind of like a split from the Tribune Group, a split of MPs who had supported Tony Benn as a left-wing candidate for deputy leader. And since then, really, it's been the organised Benite currents within the Parliamentary Labour Party. And, of course, there are different groups within the Parliamentary Labour Party. Uh, and the Social Campaign Group uh, is an important part of it. And so in the years, for example, uh, when Tony Blair was leader, the Socialist Campaign Group of Labour MPs kind of kept the flame alive for Benite politics. And you had different MPs within it specialising in different areas. So... John McDonnell and the Socialist Campaign Group was specialising in the economy and socialist perspectives on the economy. Uh, Jeremy focused very much, um, although not exclusively, uh, on foreign policy issues, uh, on peace and justice and anti-war internationalism. Uh, and Diane uh, Abbott focused you know, on the politics of race, uh, combating racism, uh, and also policies in relation to uh, the Home Office. And so the Socialist Campaign Group played an important role at that time in being the bridge between the Benite tendency within the Parliamentary Labour Party and the bigger movements outside, the social movements, the trade union movements, the anti-war movements. And actually that meant that when the political context changed and people looking for something different after they'd seen Labour fail to properly oppose austerity between 2010 and 2015, when people were looking for a different way forward, looking for an anti-austerity politics. The Socialist Campaign Group was still in existence, 
and the leading figures of it were still in existence. And that really is what gave rise to uh, Jeremy becoming a uh, leader. You know, the Socialist Campaign Group was an important part of that. And when many of the members of the Socialist Campaign Group became members of Labour's front bench, obviously the Socialist Campaign Group wasn't functioning in the same way because traditionally the Socialist Campaign Group has been more or less, more or less exclusively uh, a backbench enterprise. And so I refounded it with the, as I say, the permission of Jeremy John and Diane. And, and the good news is that it's, it's expanded in numbers even since 2019. So I think there's about 34 members of parliament uh, who were in the Socialist Campaign Group and there's uh, left-wing members of the House of Lords in there as well, such as Shama Chakrabarti, uh, John Hendy, Christine Blower from the National Education Union. And that's a bigger number in the Socialist Campaign Group of Labour MPs and has been for some time. The tragedy is, you know, if we'd have done better in the 2019 general election, not only would we have had a Labour government, but as well the kind of Benite current within the Parliamentary Labour Party, the, the left MPs within the Parliamentary Labour Party would have been in far bigger numbers, would have, would have had 50 or 60, not in the mid-30s. So in terms of what the campaign group does now, you know, we want to play uh, a role in standing up for our socialist policies, standing up for party members who are the beating heart of our party, really, but also putting forward proposals which could actually get us into power because I don't think, and we might come on to this later, I don't think the direction that the party leadership is following at the moment has the answers in terms of the challenges facing uh, our community during this crisis or in setting out a path to power. I think the Socialist Campaign Group of Labour MPs has an important role to play in formulating uh, policy which can actually help Labour to get into power uh, and help to, us to get into power uh, with a government which is transformative. I think, yeah, I, I tend to agree with you, but would there be, and I know I've mentioned before that a lot on the left are saying, but what are the socialist campaign group going to do um, in frustration at what's happening uh, to Labour at the moment with the leadership? Uh, would, there, would there be any red lines for you where the leadership would do something or act in a way where you would say, I, I can't do this? You know, I've, I'm leaving the party. Well, I think I think see a situation where that might happen. And I think we have you know different perspectives on this because I, I know that you've left the the, the party uh, film, which I personally understand your reasons for it. I personally think the Labour Party um, is is weakened by not having you in it, and the left in the Labour Party is weakened by not having you in it. Although I of course respect you and respect your uh, decision uh, in terms of whether I would leave the Labour Party, you know, the answer's no. Uh, red lines have already been crossed and we fought back on those. Look, for example, at the Spy Cops Bill, at the Overseas Operations Bill. You know, Socialist Campaign Group members have rebelled uh, on these votes, you know, voted against the Labour whip where necessary to keep with our uh, principles. I look at it this way. If Jeremy, John and Diane and others could remain within the Labour Party even when Tony Blair took us into an illegal war uh, in Iraq, then I can remain in the Labour Party now and others can remain in the Labour Party now. And even after that happened, eventually we got to a situation where we had a member of the Socialist Campaign Group of Labour MPs as the Labour Party leader, a member of the Campaign Group as Shadow Chancellor and a member of the Campaign Group 
uh, as Shadow Home Secretary as well. And the Labour Party, of course, it's imperfect. The Labour Party is a contested territory itself, a bit like a trade union. Sometimes a trade union will go through phases where it has a right-wing leadership that is taking part in anti-left activities that looks like it's out to get the left uh, in that trade union. But then the leadership of the trade union uh, may change and become left by, uh, led by uh, a left-wing uh, leader and the, and the whole thing can change. And the Labour Party was created by the trade unions, by socialists. It's the creation of the progressive working class, but it's contested territory, just like everything is uh, in, in our society. And there's a battle that takes place in the Labour Party, and of course there's battles that take place outside it uh, as well. But I think the history of the Labour Party uh, is fascinating. Uh, many people assert that it's fundamentally a socialist party, but of course Tony Benn said that it's a, not a socialist party, but a party with socialists in it. But he advocated staying in the Labour Party and fighting for socialist policies and fighting for a socialist leadership. So if people are disappointed that the socialist campaign group haven't left the Labour Party, then unfortunately they're going to have to carry on being disappointed because we think that the Labour Party is the most useful uh, political vehicle uh, to win state power in this country. And we do believe that the Labour Party can have a left leadership again. I think that before 2015, many people would have thought uh, it was a wild assertion if you'd said, oh, maybe one day Jeremy Corbyn will become leader of the Labour Party. And then it happened because people stayed in the Labour Party in those tough years and made the case for left-wing policies, but also organised for them as well. And I think, actually, the left underestimates its own potential sometimes, both within the Labour Party and outside the Labour Party, but the right never underestimates the potential of the left, which is why the left in the Labour Party are being pursued by the right so vigorously, because they know, they know that things can change. They know that there's a possibility that one day again there can be a left leadership of the Labour Party. Yeah. Well, I completely respect what you're saying, Richard, but we are going to have to uh, agree to disagree on this one because you, you've talked about the potential of the left outside of the Labour Party. And I, I can see that growing movement, uh, grassroots of, of, um, of the left coming together um, outside of what is currently not the Socialist Campaign Group members, obviously, but uh, but what is, in fact, the current um, Labour Party and... Um, uh, Obviously, immense respect for what you're doing and the Socialist Campaign Group members. Um, but, but certainly my, my vision is for the left outside of uh, what is currently the Labour Party coming together um, and delivering uh, true democratic socialism. I mean, let's see what happens. I think one of the interesting aspects is that I think the problems we've had in the Labour Party uh, in terms of careerism or opportunism uh, or whatever or, or the establishment operating within the Labour Party to undermine the chances of a transformative socialist government. I think these are problems which would replicate themselves in any left political party if it got that close to power. I think when a party reaches a certain level of public support, when it becomes possible for that party to become the government, I think you always have that. So I think if a new left-wing party were founded and perhaps one day got into the position that we were in when Jeremy had a real chance of becoming Prime Minister, I think some of the same problems would be uh, replicated 
Uh, because I think I'm everything... Not, yeah, I'm not saying it's easy for, for left groups to come together. I, I mean, obviously, it's not it's not going to be easy in the future. But, but my premise would be that those policies in the 1719 manifesto have now been seen and can't be unseen, um, but they're not going to be delivered by the current Labour leadership. And I think that that's the that's the frustration um, for those those on the left. Oh, I understand people's um, frustration very much. So, yeah, yeah. Tom, do you want to? Yeah, uh, I, come just in? on yeah. that quickly. I, I've got other things I want to ask, but I think uh, we we all have to work together in or out. Really, I mean, the the main job we've got to do, just as as a non politician, really, I can see that the big issue is the the narrative that the establishment set through the media and uh now the left very much have to counteract that by producing our narrative that people can see is is actually better than what the establishment are offering you and uh, i don't think i mean i'm i'm obviously i'm outside the labor party too myself now i but i was only an extremely minor player i, I went in 2015 because of jeremy and i left 2019 because of what happened next. But um, I can still see that it, we've all got the same job, really, and it's useful. I can see it's useful to have people like Richard and Zara and all those people saying, telling the, what I consider to be the facts and the truth is really useful. But at the same time, people like myself and Thelma and hundreds and hundreds of others can, can work on changing this whole story this fabricated story about what the left is and uh, and i think that's what our role is really yeah i mean um, there's been a, a real scandalous portrayal of the a misportrayal of the left uh, in much of the mainstream media and the way that the way that jeremy was portrayed i mean there's been nothing like it since the way that arthur scargill was demonized during the miners strike and of course the whole 24-hour news these days and social media actually enabled them to do it more intensively against uh, Jeremy. Uh, and well, so, they're yeah. doing it to you, Richard, aren't they? They're, they're, they clearly don't like you because you... I mean, you're one of the few people in, the, in Parliament who will actually have a go at saying what you believe and think rather than working out what the most profitable answer could be, you know, for your career or or whatever. Well, that's the impression I get of you. I don't know well, if you... Well, I think you're... that no-one expects to be able to agree with an MP or a party leader all the time. But what people do expect, and should be entitled to expect, is that that MP or party leader says what they think. And I think that politicians get into a problem whereby they think that the way forward is to try and offend nobody and express no opinion on anything ever at all. And as an Aaron Bevan said, you know, if you walk down the middle of the road, you get run down by both sides. So when you, I mean, when you got into politics, I, I, I was going to kind of go into that. We've had a lot, we've used a lot of our time, but um, you, at some point you must have taken the decision that it, it's going to be more profitable to stand there and say what you think and and take the take it on the chin the response from the establishment 
or you could the alternative could be that you think well i've got this agenda and if i can get myself into a position of power by kind of i think they call it triangulating i don't really understand that term but you know by being clever with words and creeping around and trying to please this person and pleasing that person get myself into a position of power where i can then implement my ideas i mean that must be a decision that a politician has to face isn't it well i just take i just take the view that life's pretty short uh, and whilst we're here we should try and make a difference and we should say what we uh, think and we should say what we believe uh, and do what we think's right so for example i i have immense well just to interrupt you there richard but i i have immense respect for you for the, yeah, for the way too. that you speak out that's Absolutely. very kind of you uh, you know just as I, yeah. I i respect you greatly as well and i respect you know so many people both inside the labor party and outside the labor party who, who were driven by a desire to change society not driven by a desire to to see politics as a career it sounds cheesy to say it but it's true. I think politics needs to be a vocation, uh, not a career. Um, and that's why people like Tony Benn and Dennis Skinner, Jeremy Down, they will be remembered uh, when mm. so many other politicians won't be remembered because they did and they do say what they believe in and they, uh, and they, and they make a difference. But, I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, the person you've got to satisfy most is yourself. You've got to be able to look yourself in the mirror and say, well, I did what I thought was right. You know, stuck by my principles because otherwise, you know, what's the point? Because there's plenty of other things you could do with your life other than be being an MP. So if you're going to be an MP, you may as well be an MP that makes a difference or tries to make a difference. Because otherwise, you know, what's the point? If you're going to spend all your time twisting and turning, uh, becoming, um, I think, again, in the words of Bevanet, becoming a dissecated cal calculating machine where you're just trying to anticipate what people want to hear. Yeah, and once you've lost your integrity, it's gone forever, isn't it? And people, <laughs> have, to, and people have to live with the votes that they cast. You know, people who, you know, voted, you know, for various bombings or invasions, then have to live with that. People who failed to vote against the Tory um, welfare bill, you know, they have to uh, li live with that. Yeah, well... Great. Thank, thank you, thank so, you so, much, so much, Richard, for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it's, it. It's and, been a real pleasure. It's a, it's a shame we can't carry on for even longer. Oh, well, that was interesting, wasn't it, Thelma? Richard, what, what a lovely bloke. Yeah, really brilliant guy and uh, great to, to talk to him and to listen to, uh, to what he's up to. Um, yeah, I, I think a great future ahead of him. I'm yeah, sure of it. Yeah, sure of it. excellent, excellent. So, um, yeah, thank you for joining us for the podcast. And we've really enjoyed uh, making it and uh, hope you've enjoyed listening to it. And, uh, and yet again, I'm going to say to you, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. That is the way we get our listener numbers up. And, uh, yeah, so thank you. Yeah, thank you, Tom, and uh, thanks to everybody for listening to us, and I hope you'll join us next time. And uh, just a quote from one of my favourite, favourite politicians, uh, Barbara Castle. She said, I will fight for what I believe in until I drop dead, and that's what keeps you alive. Solidarity. <laughs>